Back in the 70s, the mantra for teens was peace and love. In the 80s, the mantra for most teen boys was skate or die. Flash forward 20 years, and what do our youths care about? What's the Wi-Fi password? Thank you for tuning into What's the Wi-Fi Password, a place where we have discussions about topics and issues that are relevant to the teens in our generation and how to point them towards the gospel. If you have any questions or would like to learn more about this podcast, please email Joshua Shively at joshuas at calvary.com. You can open your Bibles, as I said, to Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. We are going to finish the book of Jonah tonight. That's two chapters. But it's two pretty short chapters that honestly, like when we study half a chapter Sunday morning in Acts, we're probably covering more like verses and words than what these two chapters are tonight. And these two chapters are really important to put together, right? Like chapter three is a story in its, in its own right, but you don't really fully understand what's going on in chapter three without chapter four. If you only had chapter three, you would walk away with a very different opinion of the end of the book of Jonah than if you didn't have chapter four. When you have chapter four, like the two are very important to stick together. And so with that tonight, we're finishing up the book of Jonah. It only took us three short teachings, long teachings, to get through the book of Jonah over like 19 weeks, it feels like, because we had that like three-week break with Thanksgiving and Drew teaching and So we're finishing Jonah tonight, which is a great thing. And we have seen so far Jonah was told by the Lord to go to this great city of Nineveh and preach against them, saying that God's judgment is coming to them. But he chose instead to run away, get swallowed by a fish, and get thrown back up onto land. And what we have seen so far is we've seen God use all of this to change Jonah's heart. God has used all of this to help Jonah grow into having the same heart of God, or you could think of it as having the same care as God, or the same purpose as God, the same mission as God. He is on the same page with God. And tonight, we will see that work continue, and we'll see that work finish as far as the story of Jonah is concerned. So with that, let's pray. And then we'll get into Jonah chapter 3 and 4. Father, we invite you here to be with us and to speak with us. Lord, we pray as we're looking at the story of Jonah and the transforming of human hearts that you like to do. Lord, that you want to transform and change our hearts. We pray that Jonah's story this evening, Lord, this message, we pray that it would be one of the many, many things you use in our lives to change our hearts to be more like your sons. So Father, do that work in us tonight, whether it's a small bit or a massive bit. Lord, change our heart to be like you, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's start by just reading the first two verses of chapter three together. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah chapter 3, it's really interesting. 
when you start off this chapter, those are some verses that might be familiar to you. Let's look back. You don't have to turn very far to Jonah chapter 1. See the very first verses of this book. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Back to chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. I bounce back and forth there because I hope you see that these verses are really similar. They're almost identical. The author who wrote the book of Jonah, he does that on purpose, right? He's trying to show us that there's kind of a new beginning to the book of Jonah. That we have, in a sense, restarted Jonah's story with God coming to him again and giving him the same mission that we started with. In the two chapters between these verses, we've seen a lot happen to Jonah, right? This would be a crazy week in your life, right? It probably took a good bit more than a week. But the first time we saw that message come to Jonah, what happened? Well, he ran away. He got on a boat and sailed in the opposite direction of where God told him to go to what he would have considered the end of the earth, right? The furthest place he could get away from the city of Nineveh. On the way, there's this crazy storm that broke out. The sailors and everyone on the ship thought that they were going to die. They realized it was Jonah's fault that because of his disobedience, this storm was coming. So he told them to throw him into the ocean, possibly hoping, but probably expecting to die. He falls into the ocean, and then what I guarantee you he did not expect happens, he gets swallowed up in a large fish. I don't think that was Jonah's plan. I don't think he had this like mission impossible moment where he was like, I'm going to jump off at the perfect time and like land like inside a whale or whatever. No, the Lord said that. It was unexpected. He was inside of that fish for three days and three nights. Eventually, he prayed to the Lord, confessed a little bit that he was wrong, but really was looking to God and saying, I'm far away from you, and this is really hard. This is really challenging. And then the Lord answers his prayer, has the fish vomit him up on dry land, and now we're at chapter 3, and once again, God gives the same mission to Jonah. God says these same words to him. I want you to notice that after all of that, God does not take away Jonah's mission. He has not kicked Jonah out of the family of God or even the work of God, right? You could picture if you think of God as if he's like a sports team or whatever sport you play. It's your basketball team, baseball team, cross country team, water polo team, cricket team, shuffleboard team, or whatever team you're on, Think about that. Think if you did something like what Jonah did. Say you're on a basketball team and your coach is like, all right, I want you to take a three-point shot to try, to try to get us a lead in this game. And instead of doing that, you decide, I'm going to take the basketball. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go join another team in another league and score for the other team. And then I'm going to come back. You think your coach would sit there and be like, awesome. Hey, same play. Do the same, like, take this same shot. No, your coach would probably kick you off the team at that point. It's like, you don't want to be here, you're not going to be here. Or at least, like, bench you. Like, you're not going to keep playing 
if you've completely disobeyed and rejected the plan and actually gone against it. But that's not what God does. God doesn't have Jonah return and kick him off the team. God doesn't even put Jonah on the bench. Instead, we see God give Jonah a second chance. This is a big theme in the book of Jonah, especially in these final chapters. The theme that we see here is that we have a God of second chances. In fact, we have a God of third chances and fourth chances and 6,317th chances. We have a God whose grace is abundant. We have a God who shows mercy and unfailing love to thousands, as he says, as Jonah will even repeat back to him next chapter. We have a father who is so merciful and patient and understanding with us. And he is so much faster to love and forgive and be merciful than to judge and condemn and kick out. We have a God who absolutely loves to forgive us, absolutely loves to be merciful to us, who absolutely loves to give us second chances, even when we don't deserve it, even when on that second chance we're still not going to get it right, even when there's still issues going on with us, our God is so patient and good with us that he gives us those second chances. Let me tell you, that is a beautiful and incredible thing. Never forget that this is true. It's going to be easy to forget that it's true. It's going to be easy at times to have a much harsher opinion of yourself than God does. It's going to be easy at times to look at your life, to look at your limitations, look at your skills, look at past mistakes, past failures, look at things that God has told you to do that has not gone well. It's going to be easy to start to think, yeah, I'm a failure. I'm off the team, or at least I should be sitting on the bench. When our God is a God who gives us chances. Our God is a God who loves to be merciful. Our God is a God who is not surprised by our sin and failures. Instead, he's a God who gave us his son to die for us. He's a God who, knowing all that we would do, sent his son to die for us. A God who, as Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners. In other words, Bible language for saying, before you did anything to earn it. Right? That's Bible language for when there was no good reason for God to choose. Like, you were not the special, like, gem that was incredible and would give God so much value. And you would be, like, his partner and be like, I, I am in need of that person. No, while you were a sinner, God loved you. God considered you valuable. God considered you worthwhile. He gave his only son to die for you. And so brothers and sisters, I want you to know that everything in our life and everything in our relationship with God flows back to his grace. It flows back to his mercy for us, his love for us, his gifts that we do not deserve, his goodness. It all flows back to us. It all flows back to it, his grace. Because it's his grace and forgiveness that invites us into his family. We are, by grace through faith, we are saved. But it's also his grace that holds on to us, that keeps us in his family. We have not been adopted into his family and then made to be like an American idol where it's just like, all right, you got to perform well enough because once a week we're going to pick one kid in the youth group and they're out of God's family. No, that's not it at all. It's by God's grace, it's by his mercy. And his grace never stops, and it never runs out. So our God here, he gives Jonah a second chance. 
just as he does with us countless times. Let's see what happens with it in verse 3. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, meaning they're repenting, they're mourning, they're recognizing, oh, we have sinned against God, judgment is coming, we need to turn away from this and turn to God and repent and hope that he will forgive us. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So we've already seen God's grace at work in Jonah giving him second chances. And here we are overwhelmed by God's grace to the people of Nineveh. Right? I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. We could talk about the city of Nineveh and the incredible forgiveness God has given them. That, that is multiple sermons in and of itself, but I want to keep the focus here on Jonah. But still, we need to appreciate this. This is an incredible work that God does. Because Jonah walks in, it says this city, it would take three days to cover. And the author says, here's how Jonah preached to that. He spent one day, walked into the middle of the city, and he preached in Hebrew five words. He gave a five-word sermon of 40 days, Nineveh is by. Nineveh is gone. Nineveh is done. Nineveh is destroyed. Whatever it is. Five words. That's all he says in this gigantic city. And what happens? Revival. Right? These people are transformed. They hear this message. They believe it. They get on board with it. All the way up to the king himself takes off his robes, humbles himself, repents, gives out an order that everyone, even animals, he says like even our cattle, even our flocks, like our chicken, our sheep, all of these things, they are going to repent too. They are going to join us in asking for forgiveness from God. It's incredible. These people humble themselves, they repent, and incredibly God forgives them. He spares this city of the judgment that he has announced was coming for them. God has given Nineveh a second chance, just as he did with Jonah, and just as he does for us. And we also see, getting back to our focus of Jonah here, we see the result of this second chance that God has given him. And it's a good result. right? Look at verse 3 again. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. He obeyed the word of the Lord. That's very different from chapter 1. The author, he, he puts those two in the same way 
Because you can kind of imagine like a runner, like starting a race, like lined up with the starting blocks. You've ever done track? I've never done track. You can kind of picture what that's like. And you have like the gun that goes off or whatever is the whistle and the race starts. Both chapter one and chapter three kind of starts off. Jonah's up at the starting blocks. Chapter one, the gun goes off. He turns around. He leaves, gets a corn dog, like ditches track and field all together. But verse three, he goes for it. He runs. He obeys. He does what he is supposed to do. Jonah did what God asked him this time. That's no small thing, right? Jonah's obedience is great. I want to encourage you all today. It's very important for us to be obedient to the Lord as well, right? Obedience is something we're called to do. We're told as Christians that part of our relationship with God is that we are his servants, that we are to view Jesus as our Lord, our master, our king, And a part of that relationship is obedience. Even viewing God as our father, a part of that relationship is obedience. If you have a relationship with your father today, and if your relationship involves absolutely zero obedience, chances are there's some hardship in that relationship. I'm willing to bet you're getting punished a whole lot because there's zero obedience to it. Right? Obedience is important. It shapes our relationship with people in authority over us. And God's got authority over us. We're called to be obedient to him. And obedience to God, it's a great way to respond to the second chances that he gives to us. Right? Obedience is crucial. When God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to them, the right response is be obedient, go to Nineveh and preach to them. Right, if God gives you a command and God says, honor your father and your mother, obedience means honoring your father and your mother. If God says, do not murder, obedience means don't kill people. Right, if God says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemy as yourself, obedience means loving our neighbors, loving our enemies, loving others. We're called to be obedient. But, and this is a very important but, Obedience is actually not all that God is after. I want to remind you of Psalm 86, verse 11. This is our theme verse that we've been talking about, where David there prays, he says, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. As we've been looking at it in the book of Jonah, that prayer is essentially praying, God, we want to share your heart. We want our heart, our feeling, our passion, our mission, our purpose, our desires. We want those to fear you. We want them to be in line with God. We want to be running in the same lane that he is, on the same mission that he is. And obedience, it's an important part of that. But obedience usually deals with the body or with the mind, with the choice that we make. But did you know you can be obedient without having your heart in it? We had a small group question. It was a trick. It was meant to show you guys this. Question number two, if you guys did it, the question of what is something that you have to do that you really don't like doing? I'm willing to bet all of us have something like that in our lives, whether it's brushing your teeth, which I hope you do, or doing like a certain chore, taking out the trash, homework, history class, math class, going to youth group. Hopefully not. I hope you guys like being here, right? Whatever it is, we've all probably got something in our lives that we realize I have to do that, but my heart is not in it, right? I, I don't, it is few and far between when I remember being a middle schooler 
And I would have to weed the front yard because we didn't have grass. We had wood chips and weeds would grow up. We had to pull it out, right? I do not remember a single time of doing that where I was as passionate about it as my dad was. Because what my dad saw was the end. He was like, I don't want to live in a house where our yard looks like trash and all our neighbors see our yard looks like trash. And I was like, I don't want to take an hour on Saturday to pull weeds out of the dirt. Right? I didn't want to do it. So my heart was not in it. I was obedient, but my heart was not there. Here's the key thing. God is after our hearts as well. The Lord, he wants your obedience, but he wants more than just your obedience. He wants you to follow him, but he doesn't want you to follow him as a slave that's afraid you're going to be destroyed and punished if you make a mistake. He wants you to follow him in love with the same heart that he has. He wants to place his heart within you. He wants to change you from the inside out to follow him. Let's see if that's what's going on with Jonah in chapter four. We're going to read the whole chapter together in one push. It says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? I love this story. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's so fun, right? Jonah, he has become obedient to God. He did what God asked but he does not like what God is doing. He is ticked off that Nineveh has been forgiven. Like I said, his obedience, that's a good start. We should recognize that and say that's a good thing. But God wants to continue his work to transform Jonah's heart. He wants to do that with us as well. If you are today obedient to God, that is a great thing, keep it up. But God wants to do more in you. God wants to transform you to be more than just obedient. Because here's the thing. As Christians, as I said, we are called to be servants of God. 
We're called to be followers of Jesus. We're to recognize Jesus as our Lord, our Master, our King, our Father. That is how we view God. So obedience is important and necessary. A servant has to be obedient to their master. A disciple has to be obedient to their Lord. A child has to be obedient to their father. It is necessary for the relationship to work well. So we need to be obedient to Jesus, to God as well. But here's something important. We are not only servants of God. That's an important part of who we are, but it's not all we are. You see, we are also, according to Scripture, according to God himself, we are also God's children, Jesus' friends, God's chosen people, God's masterpiece or his workmanship, this work of art that he is creating, and God's bride. We are all of those things as well. Our relationship with God, that means, is one of love, one of friendship, one of companionship. Obedience is important to our relationship with God, but it is not the start and finish of our relationship with God. In fact, it is a way that we show our love for God. It is a loving, gracious, compassionate relationship that we have. We have been invited into a love-filled family relationship with God. And so to get the most out of this relationship, we need not just obedience, but we need our hearts to be transformed to be like God's, to be like Jesus's. We need to pray like David that God would unite our hearts to fear his name. I mean, we need to become like Jesus in what we do, but also in what we believe, what we feel, what we desire, what we hope for. We need to be able to join God in all of those levels. And the Lord... He does this work in Jonah's heart in a really unique way throughout this book, right? We've already seen God work through a storm, through a giant fish swallowing him up, right? Those are some unique ways of God working. And here in chapter four, I love it. I I just love this chapter so much because Jonah sees God is going to forgive Nineveh and he's angry. He's like, Lord, I knew you were a good and loving God. I knew it. Like I had it figured out. He's like, and it's awful. He's like, I'm angry. It would be better for me to die than to live. And God's just like, are you right to be angry? In other translations, he says, hey, does it help you to be angry? Like, what are you getting out of this? And Jonah, he goes up onto the hilltop, sits down to watch Nineveh. He's kind of like holding out hope. Like maybe, maybe like this is a fake. Maybe, like, they'll do this for like a week and then be like, nah, we like that sin stuff and get destroyed anyways. He waits. God has this leafy plant grow. It gives him shade. And Jonah, he loves this plant. He's all about this plant. It's cooling him down. It's comfy. It's cozy. I bet he named it, right? He loves this plant. And then God sends a worm. And the worm eats the plant, kills the plant. Plant dies. Sun's out, hot. They live in the desert. East wind, meaning wind not coming from the sea, but coming from more desert. So it's hot. And Jonah's bur- like burning up, and he's just like, I wish I was dead right now. And God's like, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah says, yes! Yes, I do. God, my anger is a good thing. It is right. I'm glad I'm angry. It's the right thing to be. And God's just like, okay, cool. So you're angry about this plant. You didn't plant it. Then water it, then grow it. 
It just grew on its own overnight, and it died overnight. Like, you're angry about that plant. So, so don't I, as God, have the right to be concerned about this great city that has over 120,000 people in it? And, he also goes, and also animals, some cows, right, them as well. Like, do I have the right to be concerned about those things too? And then check out Jonah's response to God. Oh, it's not there. Because the book just ends. Because this is the great trick of the book of Jonah. This is part of why I love it so much. Is the book of Jonah is not about Jonah at all. You know who the book of Jonah is about? You. The book of Jonah is all about you. Of course, it's all about God. But it's also all about you. The book of Jonah is meant to be like a mirror. Right? You hold it up and it shows you your reflection. Right? We see in Jonah a lot of the things that, that go wrong with us, where we disagree with God, where our heart is out of line with him, where we are disobedient, where we turn away. Jonah is just really dramatic with it. Right? We see God say, hey, honor your father and mother, and we're like, eh, maybe sometimes. Whereas God says to Jonah, go preach against Nineveh, and he says, no, and gets swallowed by a giant fish. Right? It's dramatic. It's over the top because it's meant to show us, hey, your heart is very similar. You have a heart that is not fully united to fear God's name. You have a heart that still needs to be changed and transformed by Jesus. And so when the book ends right there, here's what the Bible is asking you. It's asking you, do you agree with God? Do you share his heart? Do you agree with his ways? And that is a great question. What's up, Jackson? What did happen to Jonah? We actually don't know. This is the last thing we ever learn about Jonah, is what goes on here. Eventually, like at some point, right? One more question, Malachi. Why couldn't the people of Nineveh discern their right hand from their left hand? It's a metaphor. It basically means like, They've got no clue what's going on with them or with God or like what's true about what God wants them to do. He's like, they're confused. That's kind of what he's saying. Ellie, what was your question? Oh, was your question when you said it was like, it's about you. I'm like, oh, we're going to make the next thing what he's going to do. Uh, like, you, you know those books where it's like, do you want to jump off the Oh, yeah, like the choose your adventure stories. That would be fun. Yeah. But so, this is a book, as we've been talking about from the beginning, that's all about developing the heart of God. It's all about sharing his heart. And I love, I, w- I wasn't planning on sharing this. Uh, this wasn't like in my notes. But I remember Drew shared two weeks ago. And one of the verses he shared, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Mary, before youth group today, asked a great question, which was, how do you put your treasure in Jesus? Like, how do you set your treasure there? And let me tell you, that is a fantastic question. And the answer to that question is something I'm still looking for all the time. Right? The answer to that question, how do I put my treasure in Jesus? That is a lifelong question. That is a constant question in life. It is a question about, man, how do I, how does my heart get united to join with God's, to fear his name? Like, what, what am I putting my treasure in that I don't realize that's not Jesus? 
Like, what does putting treasure in Jesus look like? Does that mean becoming a monk and, like, praying 28 hours every day and, like, sitting down and just reading the Bible all the time and doing nothing else? Sometimes it might look like that, right? Sometimes it it, it will look different. But here's, here's the catch with this. Developing the heart of God, it's a lifelong process. Right, what God does with Jonah here, God works on Jonah for four chapters. We don't know how it ends up. You've got a lot more than four chapters in your life. A lot more than four chapters in your walk with the Lord. Right, by, by God's grace, hopefully you guys in here, you still have 60, 70, 80 years left to walk with the Lord. Right? There's so much that God wants to do that he's working on and transforming and changing your heart. But one thing I can point to in that verse about where your treasure is, there your heart will be. I think the number one thing we can say to that, maybe the best thing I can say right now, is that your treasure, above all else, is your attention. It's what you're focused on, right? Time is important. Love is important. But kind of time and love together is what makes attention, right? There's a lot of things that I'm sure you love that you don't spend a lot of time in. Right? Maybe it's visiting a family. Maybe, maybe it's Christmas morning and open all of those presents. You love that time. Your attention is focused on Christmas morning. You're like, I see all of these presents I'm going to open up. And you're into that. Right? Your attention is there. Your treasure is there in that moment, both in your heart and also those presents. That's your treasure too. Right? But then there's also some moments that you probably spend a lot of time in, but your attention, your love is not really there. I think probably the most obvious one of this for many of us is school, or at least a subject in school that you don't like, or a book that you have to read in school that you don't like. Have you ever done this when you're reading a book before? I do this every book I read, right? No matter how much I like it, where you read and 20 minutes go by and you're like, I read six pages, I have no idea what happened. Right? Your time is there, but your love, your attention, your focus is not there. You're drifting. So our attention that's probably the greatest treasure that we have is what do we pour our attention into? What are we focused on? What are we spending time and energy and love and resources on? Let that be Jesus. I mean, let that be God's word. Let that be fellowship. Let that be worship. Let that be prayer. Let that be looking to God. And so to wrap this all up, I think an important thing to hit on, if we're talking about having our heart changed to be like God's heart, Maybe the question on everyone's mind right now is, what's God's heart? Like, if we're supposed to share in that, it's kind of good to know what it is. And one, one thing I could say really quickly is God's heart is so vast and so wide and so ununderstandable that this is part of why it's a lifelong journey is you're always going to be discovering more and more about God's heart, more about his mission, his passion, his work. You're going to be figuring out more and more. But looking specifically at the book of Jonah, I think we see a very big, powerful, upfront and in your face part of God's heart, which is this. God's heart is love. God's heart is love. It is a radical, undeserved and perfect love, not just for good people who earn it, but for everyone, for sinners, for unbelievers, for you for me, for all of us, God's love is for us. See, that's what we see here when God's talking to Jonah. God's heart for Nineveh is to save them, is to be gracious to them, 
It's to reveal his love and mercy and goodness to them. Our God loves to love. Our God, he loves you. So you see, the, the heart that God wants to work in you is he wants to make you a man or a woman of love, just as Jesus is. Jesus was the greatest example of love. God says in John chapter 4 that God is love. We also know that Jesus is God. So Jesus, he's love. His life is the perfect example of what it looks like to love one another. To love God, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy, to love your friend, to love your siblings, to love your parents. God, Jesus' life is the picture of us for love. And this heart of God, this heart of Jesus, this heart of love, it is a beautiful heart. And the Lord is at work in you and in your life to produce this in you. He is patient and kind and gracious and wise and ruthless and thorough in producing this heart in us. Right? God is willing to dig deep and reach far to produce it in us. To wrap up for the fifth time, uh, I feel like I'm great at saying that. I love to say, to wrap up, I've got 12 more points. But to wrap up, I think a good picture of this comes from one of my favorite books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? Chronicles of Narnia. And you've got Eustace Scrum, right? He's, he is a, a very despicable person. He shows up, no one likes him. No one puts up with him. He's on this island wandering around. He gets turned into a dragon. And not like in a cool way. Not like, in a, oh, I've got dragon powers. This is awesome. But in like this very frightening, scary, he's a monster. No one likes him. They're pushing him away. They're afraid of him. He is alone and he is scared type of way. And he starts to scratch at the claws and at his scales and realize he's able to scratch them off. But every time he does, he looks in the pool in his reflection. He's still a dragon. Eventually, Aslan, the lion, who if you know the Krongs and Arnie, he represents Jesus. He shows up and says to you, says, hey, you, need, you, you can scratch this off. You can remove these scales and become avoiding him useless again. And he tries, he scratches, but nothing happens. It's painful. It's hard. It's a tough work. He's taking like, his scales off. Right? It's rough. It's a, it's, it's a gnarly moment, but it's not working. It's not happening. And he's like, what is going on? What's happening? And then Aslan says to him, you're going to have to let me cut deeper. You're going to have to let me do this. And there's the, the great line where Eustace says, and his claws cut me so deep, I thought they cut my heart. Right? It, it's a picture of Jesus doing this, transforming us, changing us, making us more and more like him. And he's great at it. Right, he does it so patiently, with so much wisdom and kindness. He's also thorough. He cuts deep as Aslan does, and he transforms us to be people of love, just like his son, just like him. That's the work God's doing to us. That's the book of Jonah. Let's pray. Father, we want to be open and available to this work in our lives. Lord, we want to submit ourselves to you to become people of love. Lord, we want you to transform our hearts and to change us to be like you. Jesus, we want to share your love and goodness for the world. Lord, we want to love and worship you. We want to be as passionate about your glory as you are. Lord, we also want to show love to our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to show them the incredible love that you show them. 
Lord, we want to love our enemies, the people that it's hard for us to love. We want to love them as you love them, Jesus. Lord, you are good and you are kind. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Calvary Monterey's youth ministries meet on Tuesday nights at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Monterey. Both middle school and high school students are welcome. Come on out. You belong here. And I promise, we don't bite.